And I want to begin with a quote that I'm sure that you've all heard one way or another. Sometimes it's worded a little different, but uh, this particular quote has been around for a long, long time. It's been around so long that nobody really knows who uh, to attribute it to. It's been attributed to a lot of different people. But uh, it goes like this. Never wrestle with a pig. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. (laughs) I'm, I'm sure you've heard that one. It came to mind as I was thinking about the message this morning because it it really paints a picture of where we are at as Christians on a daily basis. And Paul understood the same thing. You see, before we were born again, we were pigs, so to speak, in the sense that, you know, we like to kind of wallow around in... uh, the muck of sin. And we liked it. We were perfectly happy with it. Until by God's grace, we were born again. The thing about it is, that did not relieve us from temptation. We were often tempted to return to the mud. And sometimes, we yield to that temptation. And when we do, here's the difference. We don't like it. (laughs) Oh, the the pleasure may, may seem satisfying for a moment, but the Holy Spirit quickly convicts us of our sin. We are beset with feelings of guilt. And whatever pleasure the moment gave us, it quickly turns to remorse. And if it doesn't, it only gets worse as we fall under the discipline of God. You see, Paul understood this when he wrote to the Thessalonians. His topic here is holiness. The theological word, same word in the Greek, theological word, sanctification. He he prays for their sanctification at the end of chapter 3. As he begins chapter 4, the first two verses, he summarizes the need to continue to progress in our sanctification or holiness. To abound more and more, as he says. And then last week... In verses 3 through 8, we saw how he said, here's, here's a big issue in your personal holiness, the matter of morality. Or as the case was in Thessalonica, the continual temptation to indulge in immorality because they lived in such an immoral environment. Not only in the business world and the culture in which they existed, but even in the pagan religions. Immorality was present throughout. And so Paul understood that even though they were born again, they were still going to be tempted to get back in the mud. And he he wanted to warn them 
about that because they lived in such an environment that was just just full of the temptation to indulge in immorality. But now we come to verse 9. And in verses 9 through 12, he takes up two other specific areas in which he is encouraging them and exhorting them to be holy. But before we get into those, I want to review something we looked at last week. And it comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 28. Let me read it to you. I would suggest you turn there if you've got your Bibles handy. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Now in that particular verse, and there's others in Ephesians and elsewhere that give us the same, holiness is is about not doing certain things, obviously being separated from sin and being separated unto God. But it is also about being separated to the kind of life that God requires for us to live. There is the negative, be separate from sin, but there is also the positive involved in holiness, and that is to live in an active sense a holy life. In this case, if someone was a thief before salvation, they are told, don't do that. Stop. Don't steal anymore. But here's a positive on the other end of that that has to be uh, entered into if they're ever going to overcome the propensity to slip back in the mud of thievery. They've got to learn to labor working with their hands so that then they are able to provide for themselves and have something to give. Now that's a transformation from stealing to giving. Holiness has to incorporate both aspects to be true holiness. So, in verses 9 to 12, we we see a continuation of this theme that we need to engage in holy activity. Holiness is not, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this over here, I don't indulge in that, and I'm holy. No, you're halfway home, you're not holy. There is some things you ought to be doing. Holiness requires activity. Holiness requires obedience as well as avoidance and resistance of temptation. So what we have in verses 9 to 12 is two areas here, two kinds of activities, two responsibilities given to us by God on the positive side that we need to be constantly engaged in if we are going to be progressing and growing in our Holiness, And we have to be holy to be like God. And our spiritual growth is becoming like Jesus Christ. As we mentioned last week, the scripture says we are to be holy because he is holy. We're to be like him. So what are the activities then that he deals with now beginning at verse 12? Let's 
let's look at the first one. Number one is the critical activity of love. The critical activity of love. Now, some people uh, get a little confused when you call love an activity. But love is an activity, biblically speaking. Love is what you do. Now, that will affect how you feel, or might be, uh, it may be that how you feel motivates you to do what you should do. But love is the act of giving, meeting needs, sacrificing for someone else. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So the first thing that we need to keep in mind is that loving the brethren, loving our brothers and sisters, loving others in the church is a responsibility that we have. And unless we are doing that, we cannot even begin to touch on being holy or uh, accomplishing any holy activity. It's a critical activity. Uh, Jesus said in John 13, 34, this is what we will be known uh, from, our love for each other. People will know that we belong to God, that we are children of God, if we have love one for another. It's a critical activity. Look at verse 9. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now Paul says, I don't need to tell you this. By the way, he's telling them this. <laughs> but we'll, we'll tell you why in a minute. But he says, you, you don't need the information. You've already been instructed. Paul instructed them when he was in Thessalonica. And he says, beyond that, God is teaching you every day. That you ought to be loving one another. Now, obviously, God is doing that through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as they use the Word of God, read the Word of God, dwell in the Word of God, absorb the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God. The Holy Spirit then uses that on a daily basis in an, uh, every day of their life to motivate them, to encourage them, to instruct them, to move them toward brotherly love. Now, he says, you don't have any need that I should write to you about this. <clears throat> He's really saying this. You don't have any need that I should write to you to reprimand you for not doing it. Because they were loving the brethren. Notice the next verse. He says, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia, which is the northern area of Greece. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. Now, brotherly love, as taught to us by God's Word and the Holy Spirit and human teachers, should be, must be, always universal. What do I mean universal? That means you love all the brethren. Not just some of the brethren in Macedonia, all the brethren. Not just the ones that, you know, came out of the same background as you. Uh, no, you were to love all, former slaves and free men. Greeks, Romans, Jews, pagans, formerly. 
all that become believers. Brotherly love, and by the way, sisterly love is included in this. The love for other believers should mark our lives. Now, it did mark the lives of those in Thessalonica. So, what we have here is this. The church in Thessalonica, they had some strong points and they had some weak areas. Now, one of the areas Paul was concerned about them uh, in regard to their weakness was immorality. And he's already discussed that because they lived in such a cesspool of it. And they had grown up in it. And they had participated in it before they were born again. And some of them had been tempted, no doubt, even after they were born again. And they get back in the mud. But Paul understood they, they were weak. And so he, he pulls that topic out of all the things he could say about being holy. He pulls out the matter of immorality because they, they were in a, such a vulnerable situation. And they were going to be weak in that area. Now, the next thing he does, he turns to their strength. He turns to the thing they were doing so well with. In fact, he's commending them here. He's saying, you're already doing this. You're loving the brethren. You're loving all the brethren, no matter who they are, throughout the whole area of Greece, throughout all of Macedonia. So why bring it up? I tell you why. Because Paul understands. Whenever we get to a point where we think we've got it down... When we, we, got, we, we got this strong area of spiritual uh, <clears throat> obedience going on in our life. And, and we, you know, we're, we're really thriving. And, we, you know, what we tend to do is when we get to that point in our thought process, we let down. We don't give it the attention we should. They had been marvelous in this area. And Paul commends them for it. But Paul says, look. This is such a critical matter that you dare not let down in this area. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. And I want to read that for you. 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, verse 12. Paul says here, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You see, self-confidence, overconfidence, spiritual confidence based in yourself is a dangerous thing. We've got to approach every matter of sanctification with humility. We've got to understand that we're not only highly vulnerable to the weak areas in life, but we are even vulnerable in our strongest pursuits of holiness. And so, that's why he says what he says here in verses 9 and 10. And I want you to look again at the end of verse 10. But we urge you. Now, that's the Greek word usually translated exhort or encourage or comfort. But here, it's the highly ex high exhortation, uh, uh, the stress of that, that is conveyed by the English word urge. And so he says... In spite of the fact you're doing really well, 
in spite of the fact you're loving the brethren just like you should, here's what I want you to understand. I urge you, brethren, I urge you to increase more and more. Now, you go back to chapter 4, verse 1, and read it. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord that you should abound more and more. The word abound and the word increase, same Greek word. A little difference in the verb, tense and use, but same word. We talked about it two weeks ago. To abound means to overflow. We talked about the bucket. You know, you fill the bucket up and the bucket becomes full. If you keep putting water in the bucket, the bucket overflows. Now, that's as we see it, that's waste. You know, you, you, you want to turn the water off. You want to turn the spigot off or the hose off because that's just water going away. Not in God's universe. Not in the spiritual realm. Because the more we overflow, the more capacity God will give us. The more we grow spiritually, the Holy Spirit will enable us. And it's like getting to that point where the bucket overflows and God just suddenly moves in and puts a bigger bucket there to keep on going. Their strength, loving the brethren... Yet he says, keep on going, keep on going, overflow, overflow, increase, increase, progress. The worst thing that could happen is to think that we have arrived at some area spiritually. Then, then we become vulnerable. Well, I think there's a lot of things to commend you for this morning. I have been favorably impressed and very thankful for the congregation of Fellowship Baptist Church, for the body of Christ, because I have seen you serve the Lord and abound and increase during this time in which everything has been thrown out of kilter, you know? Nothing's the same, and we're separated, and, and all the rest. I want to just say this again, and I've said it before, I, I, I don't know when I have ever in 40 years of ministry had a harder working group of deacons than I have right now. I may have had some that were just as good, but I, I can't think of any of the better. What you all don't see is they're here at 9 o'clock working every Sunday morning. Rather than call upon people who regularly do things like the greeters and... Uh, ushers and, and all the rest. They're taking care of all of that. Now we're doing it a different way. And that's taking some thought and some effort. And they're even, they're, uh, you know, doing lots of things you don't see. We just got, uh, by the way, don't the pews look nice? Amen. Outside, the pews look nice. <laughs> and next week, it'll look really nice when we got carpet in here. Uh, they just finished up late last night. And uh, they did a pretty good job of cleaning it all up, but there was still work to be done in here this morning. <clears throat> the young inspirations hadn't been able to meet since what? I don't know, early March. I'm not even sure they met in March, but uh, the, the those in that ministry distributed uh, baskets to all of those folks. Uh, the children's ministry has worked overtime, uh, trying to put devotions online and uh, uh, provide the materials for parents. 
I, I mentioned the band and, and, and the music people and, and their faithfulness every week. Uh, we have three Sunday school classes and meeting regular. Plus, uh, we have some Bible studies also meeting by way of the Zoom app. It's just the, the, the offerings, which I'm telling you, myself and, and several of the deacons as we talk thought, well, we may take a hit in our offerings. We have not. People have been faithful. I, I, uh, I just feel like uh, I have got a greater appreciation for the people here, for you all, than I've ever had before. But these are strong points, obviously, that we're talking about. Uh, we need to abound more and more. We've never arrived. We've never arrived. So let's keep that in mind. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about love in a practical sense. James chapter 1 and verse 19. James 1, 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. If you want to love somebody, you better learn to listen. Seriously. How do you know what someone needs if you don't listen to what they say? You know, we, we live in an environment, we live in a world where no one listens to anybody anymore, it seems. I always use the illustration of going through the drive-thru. I went through the drive-thru of a, a fast food place here in Fuquay just about two weeks ago. I went through it two times and I, I still didn't get it right. And I was going to have to wait in line a third time. I said, I just gave up. And, and each time I, I gave them the order, I spelled it out. And I said, can you do that? Oh, yeah, we can do it. But no, they couldn't do it. They couldn't even, cook, cook. They couldn't even communicate it to whoever was cooking or else they couldn't understand it. People don't listen. But we're not any better sometimes in our own homes. We are so prone to talk. We are so prone to say something back before even, even what's being said to us is articulated it's not necessary to respond instantly it's okay I better tell my wife this because she says did you hear me about five minutes later I say yeah I'm thinking about it I'm thinking <laughs> it's okay to think about it consider it Really listen. <clears throat> and sometimes it's not even the words. It's the body language. Well, you guys know you can't get away with anything. You know, you, you can say one thing, but if it's not right and your body language will give you up every time to your wife, she knows you. She, you, know, you, you you're, just, you're just toast. You better, you better get, get it right. We need to learn to listen and to understand and, and, and to Realize that when people say th certain things to us, it's not what they're saying, it's what's behind it. It's what's going on in their life we need to understand. Be slow to speak, but be quick to hear.
Now, there are so many practical ways to convey love. Somebody, I don't know who, have no idea. My wife knows, has no idea. <clears throat> could have been someone in our neighborhood. Could have been someone in the church. We don't know. Left this bottle, Bath and Body Works, on our front porch with this nice little blue bow. I don't use it. Okay? It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a feminine product. I, I, guess it, I guess it was probably more for her, but, well, I don't know. Anyway, you know, when I see a bow, I just, I just go to the bar, so you know how men are. But, you know. <laughs> but an anonymous little expression, and on the bottle it says, you are loved. What a nice, simple, practical way to pick somebody up and encourage them. <clears throat> Many of you do not know this, and, and, and I wouldn't give away the person's name at all, but we did have one member of our church that literally gave away their stimulus check to unemployed people. There are so many ways so many creative ways to love other people. You know, 2020 has been one of those years, right? Everybody talks about it. What a lousy year it's been. You know, we have the opportunity because of the circumstances to make 2020 a great year. By really plugging into other people's needs and getting involved in ministry and loving people. In fact, and I had this suggested to me, it's not my idea, <clears throat> that we ought to <clears throat> set forth, and I, I, that's what I want to do this morning, is set forth a 2020 challenge to you. That on the week of, every week, from every, <clears throat> every week in June, July, right on to the end of the year, <clears throat> every week that has the 20th in it, whether it falls on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, whenever. The week that has the 20th in it, that week, you've got, you got a few weeks, you've got two or three weeks now to prepare for this. Come up with some way to love somebody that you wouldn't ordinarily love in a practical way. And then I would love to know about it. You don't need to send me your name. I won't broadcast your name. I don't need to know who you are. I know you like to do things anonymously. But wouldn't it be great to, to see what we could do once a month to love the brethren, even, even brethren outside of our church family? I want to challenge you to do that. We'll, 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 we will emphasize that going forward. The 2020 challenge. All right, well, we need to engage in holy activities. The critical activity of love, but then secondly, the common activity of labor. The common activity of labor. And let's look at it now, beginning at verse 11. That you also aspire, says Paul, aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. That's some pretty down-to-earth, basic stuff, right? 
Now, the King James says lead a quiet life. That doesn't mean be, you know, milk toast, shrinking, you know, <clears throat> soft-spoken, never let your opinion be known type of thing. That's not what he's talking about. The word quiet here has the idea of peaceful. Peaceful. Live a peaceful life. What he is saying is, is this. He's saying, don't be the kind of person who is argumentative, overbearing, obnoxious, critical, judgmental. Don't, do not in any way bring negative attention to yourself by the way you act. And stay away from being the cause and the center of conflict with other people. That's a tall order. That's what he means when he says, live a quiet life. Well, let's go on. And he says, and mind your own business. (laughs) You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? (laughs) We kind of forget that one because we kind of quote it all the time as a, 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 you know, one of those, uh, you know, modern day proverbs. That's in the outright of the Bible. Mind your own business. What did Paul mean by that? Well, he meant don't gossip. Don't don't be overly curious about other people's business for no good reason. Now listen, we are to love people and we need to listen to people. It's okay to know what's going on in their life and what they need and minister to them. But for no good reason, just being as the old, you know, cliche goes, being nosy. For the sake of being nosy, is a waste of your time and theirs. And, and you know, a lot of people don't even mind being nosy because if they want to know something, they just ask you. And, and you know, the bad thing is is sometimes people ask you something you don't really want to say. You never had that happen to you? <laughs> yeah. So you don't want to be a liar. Right? So what do you say? Well, I end up either telling them what they want to know, which kind of aggravates me, or I come up with some creative way to avoid it. I know, don't tell me. That's probably lying, too. Now I'm feeling convicted. Anyway, uh, just, just take care of what you need to take care of. You don't need to know what's going on in everybody else's life. Especially you don't want to know what's going on or, or, or act overbearing or uh, assuming, assume some sort of superior attitude, you know, to instruct other people and tell them how they can get, you know, their whole life straightened out all the time uh, type of idea. And then he says, number three, work with your own hands. Well, who, whose other hands are you going to work with? See, that's what we would say, but not back then, not in Greek society when Paul wrote, because only the slaves worked with their hands back then. The people that were anybody in Greek society, they didn't work with their hands, they had slaves to do that stuff. Paul was saying to people who probably owned slaves, at least had owned slaves, he's saying, you need to get your hands dirty. There's no labor beneath you. Well, we still have people in this world today that feel like some work is beneath them. He says, work with your hands. Now, why does he say that? Why, why does he pick out these three things? Because it's another weak area in the Thessalonian 
church. How do I know that? Because he writes 2 Thessalonians a little later. And what does he say in 2 Thessalonians? You guys, you've got a problem in in Thessalonica. Chapter 3, read it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He said, some of you who think the Lord's coming back soon, and we'll get to that subject in two weeks, but some of you have quit working. In fact, you're just going around house to house, you know, bumming off of other people. And he said, the truth of the matter is, if you won't work, you shouldn't eat. Certainly you shouldn't eat somebody else's food. If you're that, if you're going to be that lazy. It was, a pro- it was a problem on the horizon. You see, Paul is more than an apostle. He is more than a preacher. He is more than the things we normally think of. An evangelist, a mir- he's a pastor too. He knew these people. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their strength. He knew what to say to keep them where they needed to be. It's it's amazing when you think about this. He foresaw ahead of time. Maybe it had already kind of started. I don't know. But he could see it on the horizon. And when he gets to the second letter of Thessalonians, he's really got to deal with it in earnest. Now, the whole reason for all of this about living a quiet life, minding your own business, working with your own hands. The whole reason is verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Now, the, the best way to understand that last phrase, that you may lack nothing, means basically that you don't have any need because you were working hard taking care of your own needs. He said, look, your testimony is at stake. It may seem like the mundane thing working with your hands. It may seem like a, a trivial thing. Don't, don't uh, you know, be nosy and get in other people's business. It, it may seem like an unnecessary thing to live a peaceful life as best you can. But they're not trivial. It is, it is the groundwork, the foundation for your testimony toward unbelievers. You know, the greatest place that you will probably ever have to be a witness to unbelievers is where you work. And it doesn't mean that you'll necessarily have the freedom to, to grab everybody, twist their arms, set them down, and, and read them, you know, the Romans wrote. But how you conduct yourself and how you live and how you work and how you interact with them will give you a powerful witness. Now, I want to bring this all home with an illustration. And I got this illustration from Miss Selena Gray, and, and I thought when I read it, it was her own personal testimony, and so I called her to say, can I use this as an, as an illustration? And she said, no, I, I, it's not... It's not something that happened to me or in my life. She said, I, I just posted it. She said, but however, she said, it reminded me of my father. Uh, I did some research after that. This is a story that's banged around the Internet for years, evidently, and on Facebook and social media. And so I don't know whether it's a tr- it sure rings of a true story. It could have been, probably was, may well have been. But someone could have just made it up. But I don't care because even if they made it up, it illustrates a point that is powerful. So let me share it with you. When I was a kid, 
my mom liked to bake breakfast food for dinner every now and then. I remembered one night in particular when she had made breakfast for supper. Mom placed a plate of eggs, sausage, and extremely burned biscuits in front of my dad. I remember waiting to see if anyone noticed. All my dad did was reach for a biscuit, smile at my mom, and ask me how my day was at school. I don't remember what I told him, but I do know he ate an ugly burnt biscuit. He ate every bite of the thing, never made a face, never uttered a word about it. When I got up from the table that evening, I remember hearing my mom apologize to my dad for burning the biscuits, and I never forgot what he said. He said, honey, I love burnt biscuits every now and then. <laughs> Later that night, I, I went to kiss daddy goodnight, and I asked him if he really liked the biscuits burned. He wrapped me up in his arms, and, and he said, your mom put in a hard day at work today, and she's real tired. And besides, a little burned biscuit never hurt anyone. Now think about that for a moment. Here was a man, worked hard, no doubt, came home, but that one thing that working men look forward to, a good supper. And the biscuits were burnt. And I wonder how many men would have fussed at their wife about the burnt biscuits. Probably instructed her how to, you know, not set the oven quite so hot. Or perhaps not to leave them in so long. Grumble and bumble around about it. Not this man. Fact or fiction, I don't know. But in this story, this man was all about minding his own business. What was his business? He did his job. And he left her job, his wife's job, up to her. Didn't complain about it. Didn't fuss with her over it. Just took care of his business. Man, if we could only learn that lesson. But he went a step further. He loved his wife. He understood she had a long, hard day. And maybe she spent a lot of time getting those biscuits ready, and well, maybe she made a mistake, but... Love went into those burnt biscuits. And so he loved her back. So that says, says reams to us about who we are in Christ when you think about it. Exactly what Paul's talking about in this passage. Sometimes we are at our worst when we are at home. And that's when we should be at our best. And we've sure had a lot of time lately to work on it, haven't we? So let's eat a few more burnt biscuits with a smile on our face.